Hello, friend, and welcome in to Unfilter 358, recorded on April 12th, 2021. This is a special edition of the People's History Podcast. It's a little bit of a shorty. You see, 358 won't be a typical full-run length episode because I'm going to take just a little bit of time off this week. Come on, man. No, really, it's my son's birthday, and I wanted to have a couple of days off. I didn't want to have to collect clips for a couple of days. Yeah, no, no, it's going to be okay. I still have a few clips for today. I'm just not playing all of them. Come down here in the basement. Come on, man. Get a life. <laughs> but we'll <laughs> we'll get through a couple of them. Um, and I just wanted to get a few that we would submit into the People's History Vault. And I thought we'd start with COVID-19 because really that was what I was going to talk a lot about this week because there's still a lot to talk about. But one clip that still ends up being my favorite would be this montage of NBC's absolute confusion over why the red states don't just have dramatically worse death rates, and they seem just completely befuddled by it. Why are COVID cases dropping in states that have eased restrictions, yet climbing in ones with tight restrictions still in place? We'll dig into that trend that have some health experts scratching their heads. Confounding trends when it comes to the coronavirus. Yeah, we're going to go behind the numbers and find out why there's a surge in certain states and a decline in others and why people in those states could be getting a false sense of security. And the trends in COVID cases across the country that have health officials really scratching their heads. Yeah, some states with stricter rules are now seeing surges. And then many that were reopened right away and abandoned mask mandates are experiencing sizable drops. So what is going on? You can understand what is driving people down here to vacation and spurring fears that we would see an explosion of cases. So far, it's only been a modest uptick. And from Georgia and Mississippi to Texas and Arkansas, those states with lax rules on COVID protocols have all seen double-digit drops in cases. Call it a COVID conundrum. And states with the strictest measures in the country, like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and much of New England, cases are on the rise. While in the South, states like Arkansas and Texas that have reopened businesses and ripped away mask mandates are seeing their numbers drop. Health experts say the falling figures in the South might be giving a false sense of security. Do medical experts worry is emboldening those leaders who said this is a good idea to loosen restrictions? We worry about if there's a perfect storm brewing. Yeah, yeah. So this has been fun because they just weren't talking about it until this week. And now now we can talk about the fact that the numbers didn't exactly line up with where they thought they would. But I don't really have a lot of analysis for it. Mostly it was just clips I was collecting to just kind of document the fact that they were talking about it. And then I ended up with a whole batch of them. So that was kind of a nice rapid fire way to submit those ones into the vault. But this next one. This next one, it comes from apparently my new beat, which is The Hill and uh, Sagar over there and his continuing of the, I would say, studious following <laughs> of the lab leak hypothesis around COVID-19. And I felt like he had a good analysis here, but very similar to what my take is. And so I wanted to play a little bit of that and get this in the People's History Vault. What's on your radar? Well, in the wake of the WHO's whitewash report on the origins of coronavirus, a lot of questions have come to light that I actually want to highlight for all of you, which reveal both the corruption within our media, but worse, a possible cover-up of culpability, not only by the Chinese Communist Party, but even U.S. government officials here at home. The key point I want to make at the top is this. No evidence indicates the coronavirus was intentionally released by anyone. But the hypothesis of entertaining an accident is absolutely not ruled out. 
Oh, man, I'm so glad you said that because I think this is a key thing when we talk about the lab leak hypothesis is people kind of mix that up with a weaponized virus that China intentionally released on the people, which is just two completely separate things. One is like a really reasonable theory and the other is just wild speculation and conjecture. It is well known that Wuhan, the center of the coronavirus outbreak, was home to an institute known as the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which studied bat coronaviruses, and it conducted a type of research known as gain-of-function research. This research is known to be risky, so much so that U.S. federal spending dollars towards it were suspended back in 2014. December 19th, 2017, the NIH lifts funding pause on gain-of-function research and announced they are lifting the pause that was dating back to October 2014. That gain-of-function experiments that involved influ influenza, SARS, and MERS viruses, gain-of-function research was then offshored, essentially, with this funding. Instead of having it happen here in the States where it was dangerous, this funding that was on pause since October of 2014, which was released, that pause was released in December 19th, 2017. That's when the National Institutes of Health released the funds, that were on pause since 2014. In 2017, they released it and started funding gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab. U.S. government money. Before a process was put into place that reviewed new grants toward this type of research, known as Potential Pandemic Pathogens Control and Oversight Framework. That review board's job was to look at whether grants made by the National Institute of Health were worth the risk in studying dangerous pathogens, like SARS-like viruses, which emanate from bats that are worth the risk, and to make sure that places which do this type of research have proper protocols in place. Okay, so you're with me. Well, this is where things get really crazy. We know that a group called EcoHealth Alliance received major grants from the National Institute of Health. We also know that the Wuhan Institute of Virology's specific research into bat coronaviruses was partially funded by EcoHealth Alliance with dollars that originate right here in the United States of America, in our National Institute of Health. You see now why this is so complicated. This type of research wasn't just being done by the Chinese. It was funded by the USA because everybody wanted the results of this research. New information that has increasingly come to light casts light on what could be a tremendous U.S. government screw-up. My old colleagues at The Daily Caller reported recently that the National Institute of Health openly acknowledges now that the grant it made to EcoHealth Alliance for gain-of-function research in Wuhan was never scrutinized by the review board that was put into place to make sure this type of research was being done safely. That has prompted calls now by some Republicans to investigate why this oversight never happened, especially given that one of the most vocal and visible people in America as a result of this pandemic has been Dr. Fauci, who literally heads the NIH and could bear some responsibility, at least in terms of negligence, for allowing any of this to happen. The more I have spent time gathering the facts on this story and more, I have seen, been, and have been agog at the intersecting parts. One hand, you have the media, which, because they hate Trump, decided from the beginning to say that the lab leak theory was not only debunked, but that it would incite violence against Asian Americans. The Chinese government, of course, would never in a million years implicate itself in an accidental leak of one of the most deadly viruses in modern memory. And the scientific community has been awfully silent on this. 
Now, I assume that the silence was because they didn't want to be tarred as racist by the New York Times or called conspiracy theorists. But now I've actually come to understand that the National Institutes of Health's involvement here implicates one of the largest scientific granting institutions in the country. So people don't want to run afoul of the NIH. Yeah, that's the money train. That's where the money comes from. So if you come out and say it's something that would implicate them, that's not going to help you. But additionally, the infectious disease scientists also are getting paid to do this kind of research. So they're not going to be super inclined, even if it's not conscious, even if it's an unconscious bias, they're not going to be super inclined to come out and say, yes, it's the very type of research we're doing over here that led to this pandemic. You should definitely investigate and shut that down. Because, of course, it's going to have knock-on effects to the work they're doing. Everyone's going to be just a lot happier if we just figure out that it came from a wet market from some animal. And we just go with that. Because then the NIH doesn't get busted, then the scientists don't have a good thing that gets messed up. The, the U.S. government's connection to it and the Chinese government's connection to it is never revealed. It's just so much easier for all parties that are involved in investigating this with the exception of the U.S. government, who maybe has, you know, it's it's kind of understandable to do this kind of research. I think the whole thing's actually kind of understandable. But I could see I could see them not wanting to be held accountable for one of the greatest pandemics in 100 years. Totally could see them wanting to take efforts to prevent that conclusion here. Who it seems now is not only connected to the type of research which may have spawned this pandemic, but it didn't follow procedures in place to make sure that a lab leak specifically did not happen. And I'll end with the most troubling part of all of this. It brings really everything full circle. You'll remember the group called EcoHealth Alliance, which facilitated the funding between the Wuhan lab and the NIH. Well, the president of that organization, his name is Peter Daszak. And guess what? He's literally the only American member of the WHO's investigation into the origins of coronavirus, which conveniently ruled out a lab leak. As to why he believes the Chinese when they say, that it didn't come from a lab? Here's what he had to say to 60 Minutes. We met with them, we said, do you audit the lab? And they said, annually? Did you audit it after the outbreak? Yes. Was anything found? No. Do you test your staff? Yes. No but you're one was... just taking their word for it. Well, what else can we do? There's a limit to what you can do. And we went right up to that limit. We asked them tough questions. They weren't vetted in advance. Uh, and the answers they gave, we found to be um, believable, um, correct and convincing. China is going to eat our lunch. Of course they found them believable and convincing. It's kind of in everyone's best interest, at least for those that are looking into it, that everybody just kind of believes that story. And while Trump was in office, that's the tool they used. Oh, that's just Trump being racist. Don't talk about the lab leak hypothesis. That's racist. The, the fundamental issue is that it's Occam's razor here. And when you look at where this pandemic came from, Occam's razor would suggest the simplest answer is the virology research lab that was doing gain of function research on SARS-like viruses, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, the stuff that the U.S. deemed in 2014 of October was so dangerous. They put a pause on it until the Obama administration in December of 2017 lifted that pause on their way out the door. <laughs> I mean, I just I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, I'm sure I'm sure whatever whatever they figure out, the solution will be obvious and already apparent. I'm noticing a trend with the Biden administration. You know, they commit to getting the vaccines by a certain time. 
which you, I, I almost played the clips, but you can go back and find clips of Trump saying, you know, we'll have vaccine for X amount of millions by April. And everyone said that's impossible. That's not going to happen. I'm very tempted to play that clip for you right now, but I'm going to save you it. I'm going to save you. Just you'll take my word on it, but go to YouTube if you don't believe me. At least now until that stuff gets taken down. Um, but it's and then, you know, the Biden administration says they got a plan together despite the rocky transition. They now have a plan together. And they've got they're going to crank out these vaccines. No more Project Warp Speed, you know, no mentions of the military like Trump did all the time. But it's essentially the same exact timeline. It's kind of like taking on a problem when the solution's already in the works, refining the solution a little bit and then taking credit for the entire thing. It's like, yeah, you had some part of it. You maybe even made the operation a little smoother, a little more competent. But it wasn't really your victory. It was a shared victory. And that's how government works for a lot of things. Biden just loves to solve a problem that already has a solution on the horizon and then just double down on claiming credit. And they're clever in how they do it. When they talk about the infrastructure bill, that will be two trillion dollars. They talk about it in terms of jobs and they talk about it in terms of redefining infrastructure into stuff that matters a lot to modern life. And I think it's going to resonate with the people. I don't think it's going to resonate with most of the people on the right, but. People that are in the middle to the middle left and then left, I think, are all going to like this plan because they're taking a current crisis that already is going to be solved in about six months and they're attaching it to the infrastructure as a, as impetus to get this bill passed. And I think it's going to have traction because for about the next six months, we're going to be hearing about chip shortages all the time. And so if the Biden administration can claim that they're going to solve the chip shortage with this, that's really going to make this thing sing. Now, I have had conversations with CEOs that are manufacturing components in the computer and technology industry, and they tell me that their estimates are this is pretty much going to be wrapped up in about six months. It's going to be a tough 2021, but by 2022 and mid-2022, everything's going to be right back up to where it was. A lot of companies, a lot of companies, I mean a lot of companies, cut their estimates for orders and stuff and way down. Other companies ramped them way up. The 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 manufacturing process all throughout for the entire, like, tech industry has been disrupted because of the COVID lockdowns and different companies made different guesses about what the state of the world was going to be like after the lockdowns. And a lot of them got it wrong. So this problem is in part self-inflicted because it was just a matter of estimates and ordering. It's in part supply limited and Biden's going to solve the whole thing with trillions of dollars is going to be using the global supply shortage of semiconductors and the desire to dominate once again in chip manufacturing here in the U.S. as a galvanizing issue of sorts to try to bring uh, bipartisan support together for his infrastructure plan or the plan that he's calling an infrastructure plan uh, that he is going to be meeting with lawmakers uh, later today to discuss again. So he's meeting First, with the chip executives from car companies, tech companies, medical device companies, all sorts of companies that use these chips in their consumer goods, and then meeting with lawmakers where there is bipartisan support to reinvest in this type of manufacturing capacity, but there is real disagreement over whether that needs to be part of a broader multi-trillion dollar infrastructure package as the White House has so far proposed. In that proposal, there is a suggested $50 billion dollars 
for semiconductor manufacturing, specifically another $52 billion for manufacturing capability across a host of sectors, $50 billion for the National Science Foundation, another $50 billion for the Department of Commerce uh, to study and monitor domestic supply chain capacity. So there are hundreds of billions of dollars uh, to try to shore up that capacity. Boston Consulting Group, you're looking right here, has estimated that $50 billion specifically for chips would lead to 19 new plants. 19 new plants is quaint, but from the research I've done, it would suggest that China will still have us beat by over 100 chip fabrication plants. If we build 19 new plants in like the next X amount of years, we're still not going to catch up with China. That's what's really tricky about this is even with a lot of this extra spending that the Biden administration has in here and kind of reclassifying different things as infrastructure, we're still not going to catch up to China in a lot of areas. Just kind of comparing economic spends and everything. It was just it was an interesting rabbit hole that I went down. And that's even if this entire thing passes, if the Republicans don't manage to take a few chunks out of it. But I thought I'd <laughs> well, you may or you may or may not like this, but again, I'm putting this in the vault of people's history here. So I, I, I trust trust me, I've been torn on this, but I got to do it. This is Joe Biden. And every time I watch him. My position hardens a little bit towards him just being completely out of it. Like I've tried to keep I've tried to keep it balanced a little bit, like not go full in like he's he's a goner, but he's a total goner. Um, he is now reading from a big binder with laminated pages that have pictures and big text for him to read. He looks down 90% of the press conference reading. If you ever see like a like after a Biden press conference, if you ever see a photo of Biden looking up, that's like a, a one in four shot that they got. He every few minutes, he looks up from what he's reading to like let the press take a picture. But in that half a second to a second, almost every single time, he completely loses what he's saying and either struggles and vamps a little bit, repeats a word, or just stumbles in just the, at maximum, two seconds when he lifts his head up so the press can get a picture of him that's not looking down reading. And, you know, it's it's just, it really strikes me as if this infrastructure project was going to really change the country and this is going to be part of Biden's legacy and he was so passionate about it, why does he need all of this printout? Why does he need an entire binder that he just pages through, as he says, word for word with big text and big pictures, if he was mentally all there? I mean, remember how like the joke was that Obama was Spock, that everybody called Obama Spock because... He remembered everything and he was calm and logical and could just analyze an entire that's nothing like Biden. And I want to play a little bit of him laying out his his big passion project here for you. Building a support system to take care of our elderly parents and our kids with disabilities at home so that people can go to work. That's investing in infrastructure. And he has like two modes. He has sleepy mode and he has this kind of like I'm yelling at you. How come you don't know this, you dumbass tone? He has like an angry kind of like, I shouldn't have to be telling you this tone. And that's his awake mode. Chips like the one I have here. He holds up an entire wafer, not a chip. And then he looks down at his binder and realizes he said the wrong word. These chips, these wafers are batteries, broadband. It's all infrastructure. This is infrastructure. 
So look, we need to build the infrastructure of today, not repair the one of yesterday. And the plan I propose is going to create millions of jobs, rebuild America, protect our supply chains, and revitalize American manufacturing. And it's going to make America research and development a great engine again. So he looks up from the binder for a moment so that way they can get their photo. We led the world in the middle of the 20th century. We led the world. Now, this is him vamping. We led the world in the middle of the 20th century. And you can tell he's, he's vamping, too, because he gets, he gets kind of a struggled look on his face. We led the world toward the end of the century. We led the world in the, in the mid-20th century. We led the world towards the end of the century. We're going to lead the world again. We're going to lead the world again. So, in other words, we're presently not leading the world? We're going to lead it again in the 21st century. So who is leading then? Because if it's not the United States, who is leading? Who does the president of the United States think is leading the world? Is the implication China? Maybe it's Russia. I don't think so. We led the world in the middle of the 20th century. We led the world toward the end of the century. We're going to lead the world again. We're going to lead it again in the 21st century. Now he's looking back down, We're, finding his place. We have the best minds in the country. Many of them are on the screen right now. And they know better go. than anyone that our competitiveness depends on where you invest and how you invest. For too long as a nation, we haven't been making the big, bold investments. We need to outpace our global competitors. I don't disagree with this, um, but it seems like this isn't the administration that's going to fix it. None of these corporatists are, just like Trump wasn't going to. We've been falling behind on research and development and manufacturing. And put it bluntly, we have to step up our game. But it was policies that were made into law while he was in the government. This man right now claiming that we've fallen behind was there every step of the way. I mean, he's been a senator for 200 years. What did he say, actually? He said 120 years, I think, <laughs> recently. And I'm not ready uh, to give up. I'm ready to work with all of you, with the Congress, both parties, to pass the American Jobs Plan and to make a once-in-a-generation investment in America's future. Again, we'll provide the innovation and spur breakthroughs and we need, we need the support, all your support on the screen and others. On the screen and others. And it, when he repeats, we need, we need your support. We need, we need your support. He's buying time. This is something he's been coached. He can kind of reemphasize. It sounds like he's passionate about it. But his eyes are scanning the page trying to find his position while he's doing that. It's a, it's a, it's a trick that I think there's a few little tricks that I'll, I'll mention from time to time as we see them that he's been coached with as I've been watching him in a lot of these press events. This is one of them. We need we need the support, all your support on the screen and others in order to get this work done. And we need you in turn to support the American workers, American communities in every part of the country. This is a moment for American strength and American unity for government, industry, communities to work together to make sure that we're ready to meet the global competition that lies ahead, not continue to slide in terms of our investment. We rank like number 25th in the world now. That's not America. Well, actually, that is America. That is 
that is specifically America, you just said, we were ranked, that's data that would suggest that is actually America. So that doesn't make any sense. I mean, you can you can suggest you don't want it to be, but it's policies like many you've supported over the years that have made that America. The world map. That's not America. So I want to thank you all very much, and I uh, appreciate all the time you've given us. So they're asking if he has any reaction to the recent school shooting that was in Texas as this is recorded. And what I find notable about this is they actually did address them. Usually what happens is the White House cuts the feed immediately, and they will. As soon as they can, they cut that feed so that way we don't see anything embarrassing. But what Joe's about to say here is essentially, ask me again after I've had a chance to read the script that's being created for me right now. That's essentially what he's about to tell these people. I don't have an answer for you. I don't have a statement for you. I have people that are writing my script for me right now. Mr. President, uh, would you wait, like to wait, speak wait, to the issue of Minnesota? Wait, wait a second. What I'm going to do, I'm going to see you all again in a few minutes. I have just took, taken the time, reason I was a few minutes late, to listen to the press conference. I'm preparing a statement, and I'll be happy to talk with you at the next meeting. Okay? Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. And they cut the feed right there. <laughs> they immediately, the, the color bars come up, and Biden is gone. <laughs> It's just, I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm I, I really, I really, the numbers just blow my mind. I mean, we, like I've mentioned last episode, seven trillion spent on COVID so far, just here in the United States, two trillion dollar uh, stimulus package, uh, part of that, and then another two trillion. Now they're talking about for infrastructure. Uh, it's, it's numbers that are beyond my comprehension, and all of the traditional economics that I understand would suggest that we are strapping the future with an unmanageable debt. But I have to wonder if there isn't some other monetary theory actually at play here um, or if there isn't some other strategy that is being employed where they somehow can jettison this debt or, or something. Um, I'd love to know what you think. How how do we pay for all of this? I mean, you heard some of the numbers in there: fifty billion to this, fifty billion to that, fifty billion to this. You get fifty billion, and you get fifty billion. <laughs> Just throwing it out there. I mean, how do we do that? Where does it come from, right? <laughs> oh my God, man! So better just uh, light one up and chill out, right? Mommy needs her joint. Mommy needs a joint. So let's end this little shorty on a high note. I I always thought to myself privately. I don't know if I ever vocalized this on the show, but I always thought. When you start to hear Texas is going to legalize or does legalize, then you really know we're at a shift and you're going to start to see a lot of other conservative places begin to legalize. Well, I mean, it's just in the halls of Austin right now, as far as I could tell. But that conversation is getting more and more serious in the Lone Star State. New tonight at 10. It is Cannabis Week. At the Texas State Capitol, meaning lawmakers are debating various proposals that would potentially legalize marijuana in our state. Never thought we'd say that, but it is. They will be considering bills ranging from reducing penalties for using pot to making access to medical marijuana a lot easier. KDK's Lauren McGillis smokes out all the facts. Mar oh, 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 did you see what he did there? Huh. Smokes out all the facts. Smokes. Yeah, because that would be something they'd normally say. And then he has this 
shit eating grin on his face after he says it smokes out all the facts and then he's he's so proud of himself for the delivery of the line that was written for him in the prompter buys marijuana in our state never thought we'd say that but it is they will be considering bills ranging from reducing penalties for using pot to making access to medical marijuana a lot easier kdk's lauren mcgillis smokes out all the facts marijuana is the big topic of the week in austin and a subject debated on for years. Now, Texas lawmakers are entertaining the idea of legalizing weed. We'd like to see penalties reduced so that there's no threat of arrest, jail time, and most importantly, no criminal record associated with small amounts of marijuana. Fazio is the director of a group called Texans for Responsible Marijuana Policy. The group says 77% of Texans support decriminalizing possession of cannabis, believing it will bring positive changes to the state. It's going to be safer for our communities when we bring this market into the light of day rather than allowing cartels uh, to manage this market instead allow legitimate business owners who are licensed and regulated. Some of the bills up for consideration lower the criminal penalties for possession of two ounces or less from a class B to a class C misdemeanor. This would make marijuana possession the same legal classification as a speeding ticket. The big difference is that marijuana possession is a drug offense. Paying the fine, you will be convicted of a drug offense, which carries lasting collateral consequences. These discussions come at a time when a handful of states are also leaning towards legalizing marijuana. Just last week, New York made weed legal. Now, they're the 15th state to allow cannabis for oh. recreational use. Fifth states. And Fazio says Texas may not be far behind. Can you believe it? Lauren Margolis, KTK News. That's a little local news report there, too. Texas may not be far behind. Do my ears deceive me? Even seeing it knocked down a bit would be good, but I have to think at the end of the day, as they like to say, it's all about that green dollar, right? Trading that green for the green. Because... If you don't sell cannabis, the state next year is going to be selling it, and they're going to be getting all the revenue. Additionally, like we talked about previously on the show, it's a, it's sort of in the state's best interest to get all of their cannabis policy, specifically the fiscal policy around cannabis and how they're going to tax it and generate revenue and where that money goes and how they spend it. Man, it's, it's in their best interest to get that figured out before the federal government tells them how to do it. And... Uh, because it's state rights, right? If the state gets it enshrined before the federal government makes laws for the same stuff, they get to set their own rules. So there's kind of a time limit here in a bit. Because at some point, if the federal government legalizes, they're going to wish they'd made their own rules because they want to say how that money gets spent, don't they? All right. Well, that wraps it up. You know, something crazy is probably going to happen now. But, of course, I will be back next week. I will include it in next week's episode. And we always have the Discord at unfiltered.show slash Discord. Thanks for being here on this episode of this little shorty, which not so short. Thanks for being here. See you next week. Corn Pop was a bad dude.